Hey, Crime Salad listeners, what is up? Ashley and Ricky here with Crime Salad Podcast, and we cannot wait to dive into this week's episode. It's about a girl who's 19 years old named Sarah Gonzalez McLynn. And at this age, she drugged, tied up, and nearly decapitated a man she once thought of as a father, 52-year-old Harold Sasko. And while Sarah herself has admitted to her crime and the details of the murder itself are clear, her motivation and trauma that led up to the murder were hardly mentioned in her trial. As with the case of Bobby Jost and its killer, Lisa Montgomery, Sarah's sentencing raises important questions about how the legal system deals with killers who have been victimized themselves. Headlines suggested Sarah killed her former employer or her housemate, but the message she left at the crime scene suggests that she may have been a victim in her own way, seeking an escape by any means necessary. So let's paint the picture of Sarah's background. Sarah was born in July of 1994 and had spent her whole life in Topeka, Kansas. And as a child, Sarah was homeschooled for a few years, which according to her cousin, made her a bit sheltered. Regardless of her naivety, she was always a kind girl. She helped care for her brother who had a disability and had even rescued an abused horse. However, her life began to grow more and more difficult as she suffered through a series of traumatizing events. When she was still very young, a neighbor began sexually abusing her. By the time she was 15, her parents had divorced and she stopped talking to her father altogether and often got into angry arguments with her mother. Given the abuse of her strained relationship with her parents, Sarah struggled to cope and began to drink and sneak out of the house late at night. Before she could turn 16, things continued to worsen for Sarah. One horrible night, she was assaulted by a friend she thought she could trust. He pushed her into a coffee table so hard that it broke, he burned her back with cigarettes and raped her. Struggling to deal with the trauma of her experiences, Sarah developed PTSD and eventually attempted suicide, leading to a brief hospitalization. She was able to receive some help and began taking medication. Though Sarah was working on managing her PTSD, her life at home with her parents was becoming a growing source of anxiety and stress. She didn't feel safe or welcome at home and was looking for a way out. She had gotten a job at a CeCe's Pizza, a buffet-style pizza chain, but she wasn't making enough money to live on her own. It was at this job that Sarah met Harold Sasko. On the outside, Harold Sasko, who also went by the name Hal, appeared to be a successful businessman. At almost 50 years old, he was the owner of three CeCe's Pizza's restaurants that were doing relatively well in the Topeka area. When Sarah first began working for Hal, she was barely 15. At work, she always felt that he was very kind and supportive of her. He even would give her rides to work after she finished school. 
car rides that he told Sarah not to tell her mom about. Though Hal presented as a put-together businessman, those who were close to him painted a much different picture. One woman named Anne had a son and a daughter that worked for Hal at CC's, and since they were so young, they could only work short shifts, so Anne would often drop them off at work and wait for them in the parking lot of the restaurant for their shift to finish. Anne shared that Hal would often come to her car and talk to her for a while while she waited often venting about his life. Anne said that Hal had talked about suicide, but he said he would never do it because of his Catholic faith. Hal even went as far as telling Anne that he would like her to kill him in a specific way. Anne was shocked and knew from then on that something dark was inside of Hal. Anne wasn't the only one that was convinced that Hal Sasko wasn't the nice guy he pretended to be. Terry David was a manager of one of the CC Pizza's restaurants that Sasko owned in the Topeka area, and like Anne, he shared her suspicions. Terry believed that Hal played up his Christianity to the parents of the young employees at his restaurant, but at the same time, he told Terry to only hire young, attractive girls. Distrustful of his boss, Terry had warned some of the girls to be careful around Hal, believing that his motives for hiring young girls were far from good. Terry thought that it was only a matter of time before someone realized that Hal was a wolf in sheep's clothing. But Sarah Gonzalez McLynn didn't see it that way. She was still in high school, didn't want to live at home with her parents, and when she was looking for help, Hal was right there. She had stopped working at CeCe's Pizza, but Hal still made an effort to be in Sarah's life. He continued to give her rides from school to her new job or to grab food. And during these car rides, he learned about her situation at home, and Hal invited Sarah to move in with him. She initially refused being only 16, but after graduating early from Topeka High School in 2012 and turning 17, Sarah changed her mind and decided to move into Hal's house in Lawrence, Kansas. Given that he was in his 50s and her daughter was still so young and had been through so much trauma already, Sarah's mother didn't think it was a good idea for her to move in with this older man. Her mother's stance only made the relationship worse as they fought over Sarah's choice. Sarah tried to convince her mom that Hal was a good Christian man and that he felt like he was doing a good deed by rescuing her from a broken home. Sarah's mother knew that Sarah had confided to Hal about her history of abuse and difficulties coping with her parents' separation. She was young, incredibly vulnerable, and he was there pretending to save her and talking about God. Later, Sarah shared that she had believed Hal was there to help her and that he had promised her a better life. She also believed that he would pay for her to go to college. Despite her mother's warnings, Sarah moved in with Hal. At first, he was very nice and acted as a father figure. He would tell friends that he was her stepfather and she had his number as dad in her phone. For the first few months, things were okay, and Sarah believed that she was on the path to a better life that he had promised. But as her mom predicted, Sarah's life with Hal began to change for the worse. 
Knowing her history with substance abuse, he would give her drugs and alcohol, and after she was too intoxicated, he would make advances towards her, and he tried to convince her that they should start dating. Seeing him as a father, Sarah refused, but this just heightened his anger towards her. No longer the kind man that had initially befriended her, how would be little Sarah and could even be violent at times. To cope with this sudden change in character, Sarah said that she would try to check out instead of engaging with him. As time went on, Hal began making a running list of items and expenditures he had paid for, telling Sarah she couldn't leave until she had paid him back for everything that was on this list. But of course, the cost was far more than she could ever afford. In addition to demanding money from her, Hal repeatedly insinuated that unless she began a sexual relationship with him, she would be kicked out. Given her strained relationship with her parents and lack of financial means, she had nowhere else that she felt that she could go. On a night shortly after she turned 18, Sarah finally gave in to Hal's increasingly sexual advances. She got really drunk and agreed to have sex with Hal. She regretted it though and told him that it would never happen again. But he had gotten what he wanted and he continued to pressure her often until she gave in to him. But only when she had drank so much that she was hardly conscious. Hal was happy to keep providing her with weed, ecstasy, and alcohol. For the most part, Hal kept it so there was nowhere else for Sarah to go, night and day. The only time she left their house was for her shifts at Bed Bath & Beyond. She gave all of her paychecks from working straight to Hal to pay off her debt to him, but because of this ever-growing list, it never made much of a difference. Ultimately, this only put her further under his control as she didn't have money of her own. For two years, Sarah was without money and felt like there was no place else to go. She was stuck in a home where she was coerced into sleeping with a man who used to be like a father to her. Sarah later shared that she felt like a toy to him, like his personal Barbie doll. To make her into his idolized Barbie, Hal pressured her to change her body through plastic surgery, spending $10,000 on gluteal implant surgery. After receiving plastic surgery for butt implants, she was also on hydrocodone for pain, a highly addicted opioid that only worsened her substance abuse issues. As Sarah's debt to Hal grew exponentially, he asked for more and more of her, including demanding that she gets a nose job and then a boob job. Sarah's mental state continued to deteriorate. She was embarrassed that her relationship with Hal had turned sexual and couldn't figure out how she could ever get enough money to pay him back and leave. She began taking antidepressants and was working on managing her growing violent thoughts. Perhaps these violent thoughts were what first led her to purchasing rabbits from a local pet store that she then killed, skinned, and ate. Why she did this, we aren't sure. But given her years of emotional and physical abuse, psychologically, Sarah wasn't okay, and things were getting worse. By early January of 2014, Sarah felt like she was living a hazy, horrible dream. On the night of January 14th, 2014, as he often did, Harold Sasko asked Sarah to bring him a beer. She complied, bringing him his first second and third beers 
But in his fourth, after a few so he wouldn't notice the taste, she crushed up some of his sleeping pills and waited for him to pass out. She crushed up a few more pills and put them in his fifth and sixth beers, just to be sure. Once she confirmed Hal was deeply asleep, she bound his wrists and ankles tightly with zip ties. At one point, Hal briefly woke up and mumbled something, but quickly fell back to sleep. Sarah then held a knife to his throat, the same knife she had used to kill rabbits in the months earlier, and found his carotid artery. Her search history on her computer would show that she had searched for Hal to find this spot a few days previously. After she found Hal's artery, Sarah stuck the knife in his neck as deeply as she could until she reached the floor. She began to cut deeper through his neck, sawing back and forth, and nearly decapitated him. Blood poured all over. When she could no longer cut anymore, Sarah finally stopped. Using Hal's blood, she wrote one word on the wall above him, freedom. Sarah then quickly cleaned herself up, taking a shower to wash away all of Hal's blood that sprayed and poured out of him while she was taking his life. She packed up her things in her Nissan Altima and left with Hal's dog, a chocolate lab named Oliver. Hal's body was found three days later, right where Sarah had left him. Investigators found multiple beer cans strewn around the house, three of which had residue from sleeping pills at levels strong enough to have subdued Hal. They also found even more zip ties near Hal's feet. Some used and cut, others were new. The forensic pathologist testified that Hal had died from the cuts and stab wounds to his neck and that Sarah had cut through most of the neck down to his spine. After police found Hal's body, they were initially concerned that Sarah had been kidnapped as her cell phone was on the kitchen counter. They immediately sent out a missing persons alert and a bolo for Hal's car. Sarah's family, concerned that something had happened to their daughter, and unaware of her role that she played in Hal's murder, notified police that she had attempted to call her grandmother. Police were able to track these calls to convenience stores on the route from Kansas towards Texas. When video surveillance showed that it was Sarah who willingly made these calls alone, police knew that she hadn't been kidnapped as they initially suspected. Instead, they began to believe that she was the primary person of interest in Hal's murder. Sarah, still on the run, made it to Florida. While there, she used cash that she had taken from Hal after his murder to get two new tattoos. One of roses on her shoulder, and the other was a quote from the Sue Grafton murder mystery, I is for Innocent. As she was being tattooed, she talked to the tattoo artist about their shared interest in serial killers. He had no idea of what crime she had committed days earlier. The quote he tattooed on her ribs read, Beware the dark pool at the bottom of our hearts. In its icy black depths dwell strange and twisted creatures. It is best not to disturb. Nearly a week later, Sarah was found sleeping in Howe's car in Miami, Florida by the National Park Service. The officers who found her said that she was sleeping next to two loaded pistols and the knife that she used to kill Howe. Sarah was taken into custody and interviewed in Florida for three hours on January 26, 2014. During this interview, Sarah detailed her plans to kill Howe and how she had gone through with it. She also stated that she wanted to kill him because she wanted to see how it felt to kill someone. That she had thoughts of killing someone for about two years. 
She made plans to hide the fact that she would be gone from work by telling co-workers that she had a death in the family. During the interview, she described in great detail how she killed Hal Sasko, even demonstrating to the detective the method that she used to stab him. The prosecution against Sarah during her trial worked to paint Sarah as the one in charge in her relationship with Hal, not focusing on the fact that he was over 30 years older than her and had been manipulating her since she was 15. The prosecution made the argument that Sarah was a cold-blooded killer, claiming she killed Sasko for nothing more other than the curiosity of what it would be like to kill someone. They felt that she wrote freedom in blood, not so much as freedom from Hal, but freedom from the rules and restrictions of society. They suggested that, to her, freedom meant murdering another human being just to see it. Their arguments also repeatedly showed how she had been planning the murder for at least a month. Her internet searches included vulnerable neck spots and how to get a passport in Lawrence, Kansas. Some of Sarah's co-workers from Bed Bath & Beyond also testified against her. One, Trustin Jacobs. He said that on the Friday before Hal was killed, Sarah talked excitedly about a new group of friends who took methamphetamine and would beat each other up. Though he was worried by the idea of this, Sarah had said she enjoyed watching it and it didn't bother her that someone could get hurt. He also said that she said she wouldn't mind seeing someone die. Three other Bed Bath & Beyond employees testified that she had called them the day of Hal's death to say her father had died. Charles Gonzalez believed her because she was sobbing and very emotional. He said something had obviously happened to make her that upset. Because of these testimonies, on top of Sarah's confession, in which she appeared entirely calm and unemotional, the prosecution recommended a minimum 50-year sentence. Sarah's defense strategy hinged on the claim that Sarah suffered from a dissociative identity disorder and that she had multiple personalities. They claimed that one of her four personalities, Alyssa, was responsible for the slaying. The defense's main expert witness, Dr. Marilyn Hutchinson, used the phrase system of Sarah to describe the multiple personalities. These were Alyssa, Vanessa, Myla, and No Name. Dr. Hutchinson came to the conclusion after many sessions with Sarah totaling over 17 hours. During these meetings, Sarah often referred to herself using us and we, and she had lapses in memory. In Dr. Hutchinson's explanation of the crime, she stated that Vanessa was a quiet and scared personality who intended to commit suicide to escape Hal. Myla acted as more of a mother to Vanessa and told the system of Sarah that Vanessa planned to commit suicide. Alyssa then, in order to protect herself, felt like the greatest thing she could do was to kill Hal. During the actual murder, Dr. Hutchinson stated that Vanessa had likely regained control briefly and cut Hal's ties, but when Alyssa took over, she rebounded the hands and killed him. A psychiatrist for the prosecution, Dr. William Logan, had a different take on Sarah's case, noting that a diagnosis alone was not sufficient to say whether she was capable of understanding and forming the intent to kill. 
Diagnoses like Sarah's can vary in severity and do not rule out the possibility that she was in charge of her actions. Dr. Logan and Dr. Hutchinson did, however, agree on the fact that Sarah had undergone a number of traumas throughout her life. In addition to the assaults, he noted that her long-term homeschooling and the fact that she had attended many different schools over the years made it difficult for her to adapt socially or to change. Anne and Terry, who we mentioned earlier, had expressed concerns over Hal's behavior, but did not testify in defense of Sarah. Anne knew Hal as a very sick person and felt that the jury should have heard how he was messed up and that this was the environment Sarah was a part of. This information, which could have been used to paint a different picture of Hal and give some context to the life of Sarah was subjected to, was told to the assistant district attorney, but Anne wasn't called to testify at the trial. Sarah claims that her attorney, Carl Cornwell, a self-labeled super lawyer, convinced her that they were going to win the case. Cornwell argued that although Sarah had committed the crime, she should have not been found guilty because of her supposed mental disorder. Since the trial, many have wondered if this was the best defense for Sarah and whether this representation was adequate. Rather than using the battered women syndrome defense, essentially that Sarah was an abused woman who killed her abuser because she felt it was necessary to escape the relationship, the defense wanted the jury to believe that Sarah was incapable of a rational understanding of the murder she committed. This turned out to be difficult to argue given Sarah's seemingly cold and unemotional confession to the crime, as well as the actions leading up to the murder. Despite evidence that suggests Hal was seriously abusive towards Sarah, Cornwell believed that the defense would have held up because battered women don't leave and Sarah left. Additionally, Cornwell may have failed to appropriately explain the circumstances of Sarah's plea deal, which could have lessened her sentence. As Sarah describes it, he only ever reassured her that he was sure to win the case. Ultimately, the jury found Sarah guilty of the murder of Harold Sasko. After being convicted on March 20th, 2015, the jurors had two options for sentencing Sarah. They could either impose a hard 50 prison sentence, meaning Sarah would have to serve at least 50 years before eligible for parole, or they could recommend a life sentence with eligibility of parole in 25 years. The jury recommended the hard 50. After the verdict was reached, one juror told reporters that the evidence which had the most impact on their decision was Sarah's statement to the police, in which she admitted she had killed Sasko. Sarah's statement included her explaining how she researched vulnerable places on the neck and where she can go after the killing. One jury member felt that in the video she displayed little to no remorse. They saw Harold Sasko as an innocent victim and Sarah Gonzalez McLynn was a heartless killer. Sarah, only 21 years old by the end of her trial, was moved to the Kansas Department of Correctional Facility in Topeka. Her earliest possible release date is set for February 1st, 2064. In the five years since Sarah murdered Hal Sasko, there has been new interest in the case. 
not due to any new evidence surrounding the crime itself, but to the question of whether Sarah received adequate representation in the trial and whether she fully understood the plea deal that was offered to her. Rather than the 50-year sentence she received, the plea deal offered by the district attorney of Douglas County, Charles Branson, would have given her 25 years. The question for the judge asks whether or not Sarah's lawyer adequately explained the deal and the consequences of accepting or not accepting it. Beyond the details of Hal's murder and Sarah's guilt, this case provokes important questions about how cases like Sarah's should be treated. When a person who has been abused kills their abuser, should the consequences be different and should the murder be looked at differently through the eyes of the law? Other professionals have spoken out or written about this case suggesting that a 50-year sentence for a young woman who kills her serial rapist is not justice. Many feel that Sarah's own history of trauma and the abuse she suffered at the hands of Hal Sasko should not be disregarded, but taken into account in determining an appropriate sentence. Sarah's mother agrees. Though she does not believe Sarah should be absolved from all guilt for the murder, she feels the 50-year prison sentence is incredibly excessive in this case given the context. In all crime or media writing or even our conversations at home, there are also important things to consider about what word we use to describe the people involved in this and other cases. Many headlines during the arrest and trial describe Hal as Sarah's former employee or as her benefactor. While on the surface this appears to be true, it is a clear misrepresentation of the relationship Sarah and Hal had and ultimately portrays Hal as an innocent victim. Some articles regarding the case gloss over or completely leave out as much of the context surrounding the relationship, leaving readers to the inaccurate conclusion that a psychopathic teenager employee of a pizza chain suddenly arrived at her ex-boss's house, drugged him, killed him for no reason than curiosity. Given all that we know about Sarah and her history of trauma, we know that there's so much more to what happened than that. We'd love to hear your take on this case. Was justice really served? Is a hard 50-year sentence fair given what we know about Sarah and Hal's relationship? Is Sarah's case just an example of a bad representation? Or is there something larger at play in how the U.S. legal system supports victims of abuse, even those who go to extreme lengths to get out? We can't wait to hear from you. And thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. We'll see you next time. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.